0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the surprise visit by President Biden to Kyiv, where he met with President Zelensky and strolled across the main square amid air raid sirens to lay a wreath at the war memorial. Joining us to comment on the shrill condemnations of Biden coming from the American far-right and the pro-Putin caucus in the House and at Fox News is Jacob Halbrin, a senior editor of the National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Write, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and we will discuss his article at the National Interest, Biden's Kiev Visit Shows He's a War President. Then we'll assess the deteriorating relations between the United States and China and fears expressed by Secretary of State Blinken that China may soon provide lethal aid to Russia to use in Ukraine, as well as what kind of peace plan Xi Jinping will propose to end the war in Ukraine about to be announced on the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. Joining us is Michael Swain, Senior Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute, and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the United States government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. We'll discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft, Blinken-Wang-Yi meeting marked by sharp words and confrontation. Then finally we'll look into the two important cases before the Supreme Court that could determine the future of the Internet with oral arguments on Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tamye scheduled for Tuesday and Wednesday. Joining us is Jeffrey Kossoff a professor in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department and author of the best-selling book The 26 Words That Created the Internet. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and the recipient of the George Polk Award for National Reporting. His other books include The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech and Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation out later this year. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jacob Halbrun, who is a senior editor at the National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and he has an article at the National Interest. Biden's Kyiv visit shows he is a war president. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Halperin. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, President Biden showed up in Kyiv today after a 10-hour train trip under great security. The the Russians were informed just before he left, I guess, Poland on this secretive trip, but I don't know what they informed them about. The White House says it was for deconfliction purposes. But nevertheless, President Biden has shown up right there in the middle of Kyiv, standing with Zelensky, right in the main square in front of the war memorial, laying a wreath for all of the fallen, many of whom are dying daily in these massive battles that are taking place between Ukraine and Russian forces. So it's a pretty remarkable thing that he's done, but it's been greeted on this side, at least on the American right, with the usual contempt and lies and incomprehensible support for Putin. But let's start with your impressions of Biden's visit to Kiev today.
1: I thought that uh, Biden's, visit was hugely important
0: in conveying
1: the message both to Europe and to Russia that he remains all in on supporting Ukraine, that he will not flinch. There has been numerous reports in recent weeks that alliance unity on Ukraine may be starting to fray and that Putin could outlast the West. Biden is bringing down the hammer and declaring that Ukraine will survive as an independent and sovereign nation, no ifs, ands, or buts. And it was a remarkably courageous, even heroic moment for him, analogous to John F. Kennedy declaring that he is a Berliner, or Ronald Reagan declaring that the Berlin Wall must fall.
0: But do you think, though, that the United States and NATO are matching their rhetoric with their actions in terms of the desperate military needs that the Ukrainians have. For example, they're running out of ammunition. You, For the life of me, I don't understand why the NATO countries and the United States haven't prepared themselves for the fact that they're going to run through their stocks and uh, that they haven't basically told the ammunition manufacturers to ramp up their um, production. The Ukrainians go through in one day as many 155-millimeter howitzer shells in one day that the U.S. factories produce in one month. So that's just one example. Uh, That's what I don't understand in terms of matching the rhetoric with the actions, and that's been going on since this war began almost a year ago.
1: Biden's visit was about rhetoric, but it was key because... Both his his visit to Kiev and his speech in Warsaw, which is upcoming, are making it plain to the Europeans that they cannot go back to the future, that we must stand by Ukraine. And production of these shells has, in fact, begun to ramp up dramatically in the United States, in Pennsylvania. It does take time, but the commitment has been made. And some of the European countries are starting to come around there as well. Fortunately, the performance of the Russian troops, who appear to be in the third week of their much ballyhoo defensive, is miserable. So, the Ukraine may actually be okay, even if it takes us longer to get the weapons there than we would like. The Russian army. As Governor Ron DeSantis pointed out on Fox today, has been revealed as a third rate military power. But that doesn't mean that un- unless we support it, unless we support Ukraine, that they won't win. But they are in a position to win. And I think Biden is going all in. And that's a good thing. And he's pressuring the Europeans with his presence in Kyiv and in Warsaw to man up.
0: Well, you mentioned Ron DeSantis was on Fox and Friends this morning, and he said, I and many Americans are thinking to ourselves, okay, he's very concerned about those borders halfway around the world. He's not done anything to secure our own borders here, and we have a lot of problems accumulating here. So there you have classic isolationism, and there's no doubt that DeSantis is a key figure. I mean on the Republican side as a presidential contender. He hasn't announced yet, but Fox News is backing him over Trump. So how much do you think that kind of neo-isolationism exists in American politics?
1: DeSantis is mouthing the same claptrap that we heard in the 1930s, As as you noted. It's isolationist talk. It has nothing to do with reality. In fact, Biden has worked to strengthen the border. He has spent a huge amount on infrastructure in the United States. So the idea that he's not addressing problems at home is nonsense. However, we must also support Ukraine. It's in our national interest. We can't bury our heads in the sand. We can't, this ostrich like posture that DeSantis is calling for is inimical to American security and prosperity if we don't stand up in Ukraine, Mr. Putin is going to make his next meal in the Baltic states. He is intent on resurrecting the imperial empire of Peter the Great. He is a megalomaniac. So I found with DeSantis's criticisms, he's hunting for something that he can uh, attack or criticize Biden for. At a moment of truly heroism on Biden's part, Even worse is Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of the most powerful Republicans in Congress, who today stated that Biden should be impeached for visiting Ukraine and called for the dissolution of the union. She said that the bled states should secede from the federal government. These people are out of their minds, Ian.
0: Well, let me read what she said, at least a part of what she said today. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeting... This is incredibly insulting. Today, on our President's Day, Joe Biden, the President of the United States, chose Ukraine over America while forcing the American people to pay for Ukraine's government and war. I cannot express how much Americans hate Joe Biden. Pretty presumptive, wouldn't you say?
1: Absurd. Biden, Hmm. first of all, it's not Ukraine's war. Conservatives have always denounced blaming the victim. Who started this war? Ukraine and Russia did not go to war. Russia went to war with Ukraine. In fact, Putin converted it into a genocidal war aimed at liquidating Ukrainian nationhood. And he has, as Vice President Kamala Harris aptly pointed out, committed numerous war crimes. So I think Marjorie Taylor's Green's comments are beneath contempt
0: well, you wrote a piece in The uh, Atlantic a couple of months ago, Jacob Harburn, about the history of the American right, uh, particularly in the prelude to World War II, their affection for dictators. So has that strain in our politics persisted?
1: Absolutely. It's been there all along over the past century. There is hankering among the America firsters for an authoritarian regime inside the United States and no less than the people on the far left who worshiped Stalin or Mao and saw them as models for the United States. It's now Putin and Orban who people like Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon see as pursuing anti-woke policies that should be imported into the United States. And DeSantis, in targeting New College in Florida, is pursuing the same strategy that Orban did in shutting down the European University in Budapest, which had to relocate to Vienna. There's unfortunately a persistent and squalid strain on the American right that wants to impose a hierarchical, illiberal regime inside the country. And that explains its constant defenses of right-wing dictatorships abroad now that the cold war is ended and the communist cru- anti-communist crusade is over many of these conservatives have deluded themselves into thinking that Putin is some kind of a comrade in arms when he is in fact a former KGB officer intent on subverting the west but they see him as a crusader for traditional values because He's so hostile to gays, lesbians, transgender rights, the whole kit and caboodle. So they want an alliance. In fact, the Conservative Political Action Conference is going to hold its upcoming meeting in Budapest again with Orban as a featured speaker. And in March, Bolsonaro will address its annual meeting
0: here in Washington. But what is the appeal? I mean, I understand the connections with the far-right religious right and religious nationalism in sort of so-called family values, the fact that Putin hates gays and has passed all kinds of draconian laws against gays and and transgender people and which the Republicans are certainly borrowing at least a big constituency of the, the party and I see that in the compact with the Orthodox Church. The reaction of the Orthodox Church that Putin has is a similar compact that Bannon has with the sort of Opus Day conservative part of the Catholic Church that have managed to get all these justices on the Supreme Court. So those comparisons I see, but I still don't understand what it is. Is there just a, a fascination that exists across many countries for a Duce, a strong leader. I mean, how else do you explain the appeal of Donald Trump? He's a catastrophe. He's a complete failure as a president. He was an absolute wrecking ball, a most destructive and amateurish and incompetent buffoon, yet they love him, and and they loved Hitler, they loved Mussolini. So is that what it is? Uh, I'm kind of struggling here to understand the appeal of that there is for Trump, which would then in turn explain the yearning for a strong man.
1: It's precisely the desire for a strong man. There is a strong degree of power worship on the right, and they believe that they are waging a culture war against an embedded domestic enemy in Hollywood, in the universities, in the civil service that is represents values that are antithetical to older American traditions. They don't believe America should be a democracy. They've long held on the right that it should be a Republic that talking about democracy in fact is a form of socialism. if not communism. They want a hierarchical order. And as, as bizarre as these, concepts may sound, that that's what they believe. They don't believe in pluralism. They think all of these things are ruining America and leading to decadence and deviance. So you throw in someone like Trump or DeSantis, who revel in the notion of being powerful, authoritarian leaders who will crack heads, and uh, that goes over well.
0: So do you, do you think then that Biden is making a sufficient connection then between Putin and Trump and American fascists who are clearly uh, I think the, I- the loudest part of the Republican Party, whether or not they're the most powerful and whether or not they can be powerful enough to cut funds to Ukraine? Why doesn't he take the war home? Because it is a war. This is a war against American democracy. Fortunately, they didn't, all these election deniers didn't get in to too many officers. But their (laughs) desire to follow Orban's path of becoming a one-party state and essentially rigging the elections and the Supreme Court, as uh, Orban has done, that's all a clear and present danger. It's been been abated temporarily, but it's still out there. So is Biden bringing the war home? Because it's it's sure as hell is happening here.
1: I think he did in his speech in Philadelphia before the midterms. He said that uh, Trump and the uh, mega movement posed a direct threat to American democracy, and he was ridiculed in the mainstream media for doing that. But it does seem to have played well in the midterm elections.
0: Biden's political instincts appear
1: to be quite
0: impeccable. So is again what he's doing now in Kiev or or tomorrow in Poland in the sense that the US and NATO have to be all in to support Ukraine because there's no way in the world you can allow uh Putin to win because he'll be he'll be on a roll and we don't even know whether China's going to join in with him we're waiting for his Putin speech on the 21st tomorrow before the Duma, and then on the 24th, the anniversary of his invasion of Ukraine, uh, Xi Jinping is going to announce his peace program. And if his peace proposal is basically a Russian peace proposal, then it's, it'll go nowhere. And then maybe at that point, China might consider uh, lethal aid, at which point, international relations will deteriorate enormously, and the world will be in a block between the Western nations and an alliance between China, Russia, and and Iran.
1: Yeah, that would be a
0: dangerous development.
1: But I think Biden has delivered a heavy blow to Putin's ambitions to re-engineer the, the world order by showing up right in Kiev and, it's, and declaring that he, America will not buckle in this struggle against Russian aggression. So I'm fairly optimistic. Uh, the administration is also openly warning the Chinese not to arm Russia, which I think was a good move to to bring it out into the open. So, and every, from all reports from Moscow, uh, the Russians are scrambling. They they feel humiliated by by the fact that Biden could appear unmolested in Kyiv. And the other interesting aspect is one, one blogger pointed out that uh, Biden has gotten to Kyiv much faster than Putin ever has.
0: That's got to hurt. So I thank you um, for joining us here.
1: Thank you, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Halpern, who is a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic. And he has an article at The National Interest, Biden's Kiv Visit Shows He's a War President. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the deteriorating relations between the U.S. and China with fears expressed by Secretary of State Blinken that China may soon provide lethal aid to Russia to use in Ukraine.
2: I have breathed all the sea Your orphan prophecy Our destiny we will not hide When the sun comes up It will be on your side.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Swain, who is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute and one of America's most prominent scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues. And his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Blinken-Wang-Yi Meeting, Marked by Sharp Words and Confrontation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Swain.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And at the end of the Munich Security Conference, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi did meet with U.S. Secretary of State Blinken and as you point out in your article, it was a pretty contentious meeting, essentially resuming the blame game over the balloon, etc. But subsequent to that, Blinken has gone on CBS and said that they're very concerned that China might start providing lethal aid to Russia in in its war against Ukraine and uh, said that they're already supplying non-lethal aid. Uh, China, of course, is absolutely furious and rejected that claim. So how would you describe the relationship? It seems to be spiraling in the wrong direction.
3: Yes, I would say that it is. You know, it's not, we're not at the point of conflict or we haven't yet lapsed into just purely disastrous forms of interaction, but it's not good. The trend's Uh, remain pretty bad. There has been supposedly an effort by by both sides to try to arrest this this trend. And yet it it fails. Um, This last time it failed because of a balloon incident um, that forced both sides to at least they thought it forced them to take domestic uh, politics as being the primary motivator of their behavior and start posturing. Uh, This was particularly the case on the US side, I think. Um, but it stood in the way of really trying to get the relationship back on track, into onto a, a more stable, more more productive type of interaction, and uh, neither side seems capable of doing this at this point.
0: So, at, in his speech at the Munich Security Conference, Wang Yi, more or less, you know, was on what they call a charm offensive. But he did talk about his European friends and the need for peace, etc and mentioned that China is preparing a peace proposal. Apparently, Xi Jinping is going to announce the Chinese peace proposal on the first anniversary of of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, how do you think they're going to handle this? You know, the, China's made a big deal about the sanctity of sovereignty, and in many ways it would have been more useful for NATO to have framed Russia's aggression on Ukraine as a violation of sovereignty as opposed to a war of democracy against autocracy. But that aside, what do you expect from China's peace initiative?
3: Well, it's very, it's really hard to tell at this point in time. I think there's a lot of skepticism, uh, particularly in the West, in Europe, in the United States, uh, that the Chinese can really um, move the needle on this, on the Ukraine war and, and try to stabilize the situation. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of distrust. Uh, on the European side, on the West, on the US side, towards towards uh, China, because uh, while it is trying to uphold the idea of national sovereignty and not using conflict to resolve problems, at the same time, it still considered continues to support Russia quite strongly. And now there's this fear that the Chinese might provide uh, some lethal weapons uh, to the Russians. I would be surprised if that actually is to happen. At this point, um, I think the Chinese are, are trying to balance in a very delicate position that they're in. Um, on the one hand, they, they want to still be seen as being um, supportive to some degree of, of Russia in that Russia was under, um, from their perspective, pressure from NATO and from the United States, a pressure that really forced Putin to react the way he did. That's the argument of some in China, at least. And then yet on the other side, they see very clearly that Putin's reaction was indeed an overreaction, that he resorted to war, that he attacked another nation, um, that he seemed to have wanted to undermine the sovereignty of that nation in a major way. And that really does go against one of the cardinal principles that the Chinese champion in the international order, which is national sovereignty. So they're going to have to walk a tightrope here, trying to keep on side with Russia to a certain degree, while at the same time, really looking like they seriously want to try to move the ball forward in stabilizing Ukraine's situation. The problem is that neither side at this point, either Ukraine or Russia, I think, are in a position to, to begin um, talking seriously about trying to establish some stability through a ceasefire, etc. I mean, the, the Russians are still wanting to improve their position. The Ukrainians are trying to do the same thing. And uh, right now, neither side is satisfied where they are on the battlefield. So it's going to be hard to see how exactly the Chinese proposal is going to really move the ball forward unless they can provide convincing arguments uh, to all concerned that their proposal has, has some real merit to it at this point in time. And we don't yet know what the details of that proposal are. Um, unfortunately, so we can't really parse it and tell exactly whether or not it would have any any sort of a uh, positive effect.
0: Well, of course, Xi Jinping uh, characterized the relationship w- with Russia and in a meeting with Putin at, just before the end of the Olympics in Beijing, and shortly thereafter, uh, Putin went to war. And the assumption is that he was holding off on invading uh, Ukraine until after the Olympics, and of course the takeaway was Xi Jinping's phrase that their relationship with Russia has no limits now they have always blamed the US for the war in Ukraine following uh, the Kremlin line that it was NATO that provoked the conflict and in response to what Blinken has just said the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said it is the US side not the Chinese side that supplies a steady stream of weapons to the battlefield the US side is not qualified to lecture China, and we would never accept the U.S. dictating or even coercing pressure on Sino-Russian relations. So they're bridling at that notion of of anybody criticizing the relationship, but it is real. I mean, the most cynical or perhaps the most pessimistic view would be that Xi Jinping will offer up a peace plan that favors the Russian position, the Ukrainians will reject it. And then the Chinese would will then say, well, we tried, and now we're free to provide lethal weapons. Is that, is that a possible way this could work out?
3: Well, that certainly would be a cynical or a pessimistic way of looking at it. Um, I certainly hope it doesn't turn out that way. Um, I doubt that the Chinese have that kind of strategy in mind, intentionally feeling that the proposal would fail and then justify them giving more arms to Russia or starting to sell arms to Russia, I think the Chinese genuinely want to try to stabilize the situation and they want to be be seen as trying to contribute to that end. Uh, They want to try and push back against the notion that the United States just simply depicts them as a troublemaker, that that they're constantly trying to challenge the international order, undermine that order challenge the interests of the West, democracy versus authoritarianism, all of that. The Chinese right now want to convey themselves as being the more reasonable, uh, the more prudent, the more restrained uh, power involved in in dealing with these kinds of problems. And unfortunately, when you have something like the balloon incident that, that occurs, both sides tend to take extreme positions. They tend to dig in and then the tone becomes what you've just indicated, the the rather harsh tone on the part of the Chinese side, and then on the U.S. side, of course, just sort of um, calling the Chinese to account, putting pressure on them. There's no apparent evidence that either China or the United States are trying to provide anything in the way of positive incentives for either side to moderate their positions and to actually become much more constructive, both in their relationship with each other and in relationship with regard to Ukraine. Um, there still is a lot of what looks like to me posturing going on that really is falls far short of attempting to really have some serious engagement um, with the Chinese, both on the nature of the U.S.-China relationship and on dealing with this Ukraine situation. We're moving into a a, a period of time here that could become very dangerous because the Russians could start an offensive again. Um, I don't know where that would, would lead. Xi Jinping is supposed to be going to Moscow. Uh, later this year, um, there is a lot of things that could go wrong uh, on the on the ground here, both in 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 Moscow and and in Ukraine, that could really put us in a much more serious situation than we're in already. And I think it really behooves both the United States and China to try to work together to try to stabilize this situation. And that means the Chinese certainly don't want to start providing lethal arms to the Russians. That would absolutely I think, kill their relations with the Europeans, uh, which have already been under some pressure. And it would certainly just further the downward slide in US-China relations with adverse consequences, not just for Ukraine, but for other places as well. Probably the most concerning of which is Taiwan. Um, There you have still a situation where China and the United States are not really engaging with one another to try and stabilize that situation. And as things get worse, Uh, vis-a-vis dealing with Ukraine and dealing with the relationship uh, more broadly, that Taiwan situation becomes all the more difficult to manage. So, you know, the logic of the situation, the strategy, if any of these countries were thinking longer term strategically, it would not be to try to establish a polarized environment um, on the part of the United States and China or the U.S. and the West and China, uh, but to try to reach some kind of stable middle ground in trying to deal with these problems and do it through serious negotiation and discussion, not all this finger pointing, blame gaming, and all the posturing that's going on right now, as far as you can tell. Um, Maybe there is some more serious discussion going on behind the scenes, but I haven't heard of it. Not lately.
0: And uh, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, who met with Blinken at the Munich Security Conference, he's now in Moscow. And we know that. Tomorrow, the 21st, Putin is making a speech before the Duma ahead of the one-year anniversary. And on the one-year anniversary on February the 24th, China's Xi Jinping is supposed to announce China's peace proposals. So this is a very critical moment, uh, Michael, as you point out. But let's talk a little bit about China. You mentioned China's relationship with Europe has been a little prickly. It could get worse Is that really the motivation here in many ways that China is concerned about its markets in Europe, its brand, if you will, around the world?
3: Well, yes, I think that's certainly part of it. I think that China's in a process right now of trying to, as I said before, present itself as being the more balanced, the more um, restrained uh, power between itself and the United States, and is trying to Uh, appeal to what it hopes is a somewhat more moderate position in Europe compared to that of the United States, and to try to build on that, to, uh, in some would say, to split off the United States from Europe. That's not going to happen, but to at least get some European countries to be uh, more restrained themselves in the level and extent to which they support the United States position in dealing with China. Uh, Europe has certainly uh, progressed in the direction of becoming much more concerned about China in a variety of ways, statements by NATO, statements by the European Union, they all see greater concern, express greater concern toward China and and want to be able to develop ways to counter China's um, undue pressure or misbehavior, et cetera, or however you want to characterize it. But at the same time, there are definitely views in Europe that do not want this to get out of hand. They do not want to have a purely polarized environment. They have great economic and other stakes with the Chinese. They want to try and establish a more credible long-term basis for dealing with China uh, that is not based upon hostility, that is not based upon zero-sum calculations. And the United States claims to want the same thing. Um, But we need to have, as I said, we need to have some more substance here, some more efforts to actually try to lay out what a future would look like and what kinds of Moderation. What kinds of middle grounds might be might be possible in in uh, relations with the Chinese um, in over the longer term, and not just be pushed and and buffeted around here and there by this or that incident, um, such as this recent balloon incident, that just uh, undermines efforts by all to try to establish some greater stability and predictability in relations with China.
0: So, just in the last couple of minutes, then, Michael. Is there a situation in China similar to what we understand is happening in Russia where the oligarchs uh, who parked their money in the West are not happy with uh, this war and, and the sanctions that have happened as a result? And on the other hand, you've got the war hawks, uh, the nationalists in Russia, particularly on state media, calling for blood, some of it quite brutal and horrible, not that the that the war in Ukraine itself is not brutal and horrible. So you have these two camps. Are there two camps in China, do you think? I mean, Xi Jinping's got his degree in ideology. He's not particularly educated. And we talked about their economic interests and the markets around the world, and particularly not defending the Europeans. So we still trade enormously with China, in spite of what you've explained to us, how bad and counterintuitive this relationship is and at the diplomatic level, and the, on the economic level, it's still thriving. So is that an element here, that there are pressures inside China from the business people saying, you know, let's pursue diplomacy, and then there there are more hawkish elements at play?
3: Well, yes, I think that that is the case. We often lose sight of the fact in focusing on Xi Jinping alone and his stances and his more... Uh, Leninist, if you will, if not Stalinist, uh, approach to um, to to politics in in China. That there are indeed different views within China. Um, there is concern, certainly among many intellectuals in China, about the the direction that the Xi Jinping government has taken in a variety of different ways. And there certainly is concern about the economic future of China. It's looking at a, a slower growth rate. It's, it's had a real knock because of COVID-19. Um, it's coming back, uh, but some people think you know it's not coming back enough and that it's still gonna have uh, quite a lot of problems to deal with domestically and, and cannot afford to be uh, continuing a kind of confrontational relationship with the West and with the United States in particular. So there is a degree of, we can't really measure it, we can't really tell Dissatisfaction uh, within China in various circles about the way things are going and the directions that they're moving. Now that dissatisfaction goes in both directions, as you suggest. On the one hand, there's there's an alarm and a desire to have more moderation, less party controls, less repressiveness, etc. In in some in some respects. And the other, on the other hand, there is I think the view, probably held by some in the military, that China really is being pushed around, that China really is itself being bullied, that China is really under high pressure from the United States seeking a serious containment policy against China, and that China needs to really uh, push back itself and stand up to the United States and and try to uh, really show that there are certain red lines that must not be crossed. So, you have these kinds of different viewpoints and different pressures that are within the Chinese system that are operating at time. And I think it's important for any government to recognize that you have these kinds of differences. You cannot assume that the Xi Jinping government, the Xi Jinping calls all the shots within China, that indeed it all marches to his tune, um, that, that there isn't some basis for having more moderate policies and creating more incentives with the Chinese to moderate their policies um, over time uh, and not just sort of approach China as if it is this very belligerent, uh, very aggressive power. I think it's, it's, it's really a much more complex picture than that. And that complexity needs to be reflected in policies of the West and policy of the United States. And I don't see much of that, particularly in the U.S. case.
0: Well, Michael Swain, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
3: Sure, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Michael Swain, who is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute and one of the most prominent American scholars of Chinese security studies. Previously, he worked for nearly 20 years as a senior fellow at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, specializing in Chinese defense and foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and East Asian international relations. He also advises the U.S. government on Asian security issues, and his books include Remaining Aligned on the Challenges Facing Taiwan and Conflict and Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific Region, a Strategic Net Assessment. And he has an article, Responsible Statecraft Blinken-Wang-Yi meeting marked by sharp words and confrontation. We're going to take a brief station break. and back looking to the two important cases before the Supreme Court that could determine the future of the Internet with oral arguments on Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Temne, scheduled for Tuesday and Wednesday. In the
2: China <laughs>
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jeffrey Kossoff, who is a professor in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department and the author of the best-selling book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and is the recipient of the George Polk Award for National Reporting. His other books include The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech, and Lie in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation, out later this year. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Kossoff.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And both Google and Twitter are in effect defending uh, the Islamic State, ISIS, perhaps the most hated organization on the planet, two cases before the Supreme Court on Tuesday, they'll be hearing oral arguments on Gonzalez versus Google. And Gonzalez, of course, was Naomi Gonzalez, a 23-year-old college exchange student who was killed at a restaurant in Paris by ISIS gunmen in November of 2015. And then the other case heard on Wednesday is Twitter versus Tamne, who uh, was killed by ISIS in Turkey. So (laughs) to that extent... Are the decks stacked against Google and Twitter? Well,
4: we don't really know because these are issues that really other than one Supreme Court justice, uh, they haven't written about or spoken about before. So it's very hard to predict, particularly before arguments and most likely even after arguments, how the justices will rule because this is really – it's a really – interesting area because these are really novel issues for them.
0: Well, they're not exactly considered tech savvy, and anybody that's not in their 20s and 30s seems to be deficient, me included. Well, I I would push back on that a little bit. So the
4: justices have had a number of very interesting cases under the Fourth Amendment involving electronic searches and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the main anti-hacking law in the United States. And they've actually done a very good job in those cases of understanding the technological nuances. Um, So I I think there could be some problems with their legal preferences, uh, and and that remains to be seen. But uh, I I think that so far, the justices, when they've confronted new technological issues involving the internet, they've done a very good job. And I, I think they all take their jobs very seriously. Uh, I think part of it is probably because uh, for most justices, at least drafts of their opinions are written by law clerks who are in their 20s. So I'm not too concerned about any big misunderstandings of the technology.
0: So let's focus on the key part of these two suits and that's section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of uh, 1996, I think it was, is that you've written, of course, the book, the bestseller, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, 26 words being that no... essentially saying that no tech platform shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And some people feel that this has led to the kind of chaos and hate speech on the Internet, even to the point where... For example, we just learned from the emails and texts from Fox that came out in Discovery from uh, the lawsuit by by Dominion Voting Systems that Fox is even afraid of its own viewers in terms of creating kind of constituency of people who believe this, the craziest stuff, even though the people at Fox that propagate this stuff know it's not to be true. I know Fox is constrained like I am on radio from... You can't just say what you think and what you feel. You have to say what you can prove in journalism, and uh, you've got to have sources, and you have lawyers looking over your shoulder, and if and you're liable to be sued. So, from my perspective, I often wonder how the big tech can get away with being the piano player in the whorehouse. Well, so you you use the Fox News
4: lawsuit as an example, and this is a case where and I'm speaking in my own capacity not on behalf of the DOD or the Naval Academy, Um, I I think there's a very good chance that Dominion will win that case against Fox. And that obviously has nothing to do with Section 230 because that's a lawsuit against the company that made the statements. And one thing that's often overlooked with Section 230 is that what Section 230 says is that you – sue the person who spoke or wrote the content. You sue the person who created the content, Uh, and it's just the the platform where they posted it doesn't get sued. So you can always hold the creator of the content responsible. And if the platform actually created the content, then Section 230 is not going to be a barrier. Uh, But the idea is that we put the onus on the person who created the content. And the reason why we have Section 230 is to actually encourage moderation of harmful content, because the rules under the First Amendment and common law that existed before 230 essentially provided a disincentive for moderation. Because what they said is that if you moderate too much, you can suddenly become liable for everything on your platform. So under the under those rules, the most risk averse platform would just not do any moderation because that would reduce their liability. So what Section 230 does is it allows the platforms to decide whether and how to moderate. And sometimes they do a very thoughtful and reasonable job. Other times they have failed miserably. Um, And there are other times when Some people might think that a particular decision was awful and others might agree with it uh, because oftentimes there's not a single right answer in these cases.
0: But what's at stake in these particular cases being heard Tuesday and Wednesday before the Supreme Court in the case of Google and Twitter, and of course now Twitter is owned by a right-wing troll uh, who is certainly not exercising much restraint, but what's at stake here is that the Google is basically saying that the ISIS videos, which are at the heart of these cases, were recommendations, not endorsements. Is that right?
4: Yeah. So so the issue in the Gonzalez case, the Tamia case, which involves Twitter, is different, but the Gonzalez v. Google case is essentially looking at whether they're, rather than trying to hold... Google or YouTube responsible for directly for the ISIS content that was posted, what the, what, what the plaintiffs are trying to do is to say that it's actually the personalized algorithm of uh, if someone searched for something related to ISIS, then not only would they get that content, but they would get additional content targeted at them. Um, So the, the narrow issue in the case is whether, personalization is covered by Section 230, but this is the first time the Supreme Court's ever decided a case involving Section 230. So it could go much more broadly and decide to reinterpret Section 230 in a much narrower way than the courts have been doing for more than a quarter century.
0: But already Section 230 is politicized because you've got liberals and and the Biden administration and the Democrats are largely arguing that Section 230 allows tech companies immunity to duck responsibility for hate speech and conspiracies and misinformation and all the other ills that beset the internet. And one of the best examples of why they feel that there's a double standard here, or at least the tech companies are Uh, Ducking responsibility is that, for example, there's no pornography on Facebook. So they do have the ability to regulate content, don't they?
4: Well, so you mentioned hate speech and misinformation. And that is not a Section 230 issue because those are constitutionally protected. That's a First Amendment issue. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, hate speech, the Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed that hate speech is protected. Now, if you do something that rises to the level of a true threat, for example, against an individual while you're engaging in hate speech, that wouldn't be protected. But hate speech alone is protected. Misinformation. uh, The Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that false speech is not categorically exempt from the First Amendment. Now, there are certain types of false speech like defamation, fraud, perjury that can be regulated or the subject of criminal penalties, but they're narrowly defined categories. So a lot of these harms that people on the left are concerned about are very legitimate, but they're also not really Section 230 issues, because even if Section 230 went away tomorrow, the courts and regulators would not be able to criminalize them or do anything else to reduce them because they're protected by the First Amendment.
0: So the difference, though, is between the perceptions of Section 230, I mentioned what liberals and Democrats and, and the left feel about it, compared to the Republicans, their main concern about Section 230 seems to be this notion, which is, seems to me to be a total canard, that somehow the Internet is biased against them. And that's been brought up and by both Clarence Thomas, who's already suggested that... Social media platforms have favored uh, the left, if you will. And Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch have said that they're concerned about the power of dominant social media corporations to shape public discussions of the important issues of the day. Isn't that, in a way, you know, just a, an extension of how the right wing in this country has always moved the goalposts? They've always argued, for example, the, the notion of us that there is a a liberal media in the first place is a canard that has the effect of making the media company owners somewhat here to the right. So is this well, another example of that game of moving the goalposts to the right?
4: Well, it, it really depends on what your definition of bias is. And I mean, there are certain policies that do, and we the one problem is we don't have great data. Uh, We have a lot of anecdotal evidence. And if you look at some anecdotal cases, um, there are legitimate concerns about, you know, what does this policy mean and who is silenced by it? But when you look at the justifications for the policies, there are often things like hate speech. So I mentioned, for example, that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment, but under the First Amendment, the platforms still have the right to set their own policies and say, "Okay, there's certain types of things that we think are hate speech or COVID misinformation. And if if the speech falls into that category, we take it down or we suspend a user. Um, that, in my view, is the platform's First Amendment right. Just like a newspaper has the right to say we're not going to publish your letter to the editor, I think a platform has the right to say." You know, even though this content is constitutionally protected, we don't want it on our service. Uh, there are people who disagree with me on that. And people on the right who will say uh, that social media companies like Facebook and Twitter are like common carriers, like a telephone company. And just like the telephone company can't can't say who who can and can't make phone calls, social media companies have to carry all content. I, I think that's a terrible comparison. Uh, I think a social media platform, the moderation is part of its product. Uh, the, that that helps create the environment for the social media company. Um, now, Texas and Florida tried to pass laws that restrict the ability for platforms to moderate. Uh, the Florida law was struck down by the appellate, the Eleventh Circuit appellate court, but the Texas law was upheld by the Fifth Circuit. Uh, those two cases are uh, awaiting Supreme Court review, the Supreme Court should decide sometime this year whether it's going to hear those cases. I think it's inevitable. And that actually could have a much bigger impact on the future of the internet than the cases that are being argued this week.
0: But just in the last minute, there's no doubt, surely, Jeff Kossoff, that information in this country has become atomized. People do reality shopping. You have an enormous change since the days of Walter Cronkite when you had a consensus in America about what was true and what was real. So something has happened in post-truth America in terms of atomizing information. And Facebook, I think, what, three-quarters, two-thirds of Americans get their information from Facebook. So is that problem ever going to be solved? And is dealing with 230, are going to solve that problem, or is it not relevant?
4: Well, so I, I don't think that will solve the problem, because the issue is, again, that the speech, even if it's inaccurate information on Facebook, much of it is constitutionally protected, or most of it is, unless it's defaming someone, or Uh, Mm -hmm. imminently inciting legal action. (laughs) So so 230 is not going to change that. I mean, I think the best solution for that is to, and I say this as a former newspaper reporter, um, is to figure out a way to revitalize the media, uh, public support for the media, better civics education in schools. There's a lot on the demand side that we really have to grapple with, and I don't think we're focusing on that as much as we should.
0: Well, Jeffrey Kossoff, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Kossoff, who's a professor in the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department, and the author of the best selling book, The Twenty Six Words That Created the Internet. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and a recipient of the George Polk Award for National Reporting. And his other books include The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech, and Liar in a Crowded Theatre freedom of speech in a world of misinformation, out later this year. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org
2: Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine